0: This is Counterculture with Marie Busky, Wednesdays at 10am on Reality Check Radio.
1: You're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I have a huge pleasure of introducing my guest this morning. His name is Adam Coleman. He's a former liberal, present-day free thinker. He's a believer in equality of thought, free speech and open conversations. He's also the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, op-ed writer, public speaker, and the host of A Good Faith Space on Twitter. Uh, You can see some of his work in the New York Post, Newsweek, plus many, many more. Adam, I'm really excited to have you because you and I have been in touch for a, a few years now and... Now that I've got the opportunity to talk to you, this is <laughs> you're, this is really exciting. You were one of the first people when I started the show that I contacted because I was so excited to to have you along. And the first thing I want to know is how does a really lovely, quiet tech guy end up working doing what you're doing? I mean, this is you've been on quite a journey and really over quite a short space of time. So tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I, I got started. Um, not long after George Floyd um you know feeling like I, I wasn't able to express myself. And you know I was just looking for an outlet, a way to a place to actually say what I really thought, especially at that time with the 2020 riots, George Floyd, the media narratives, um, about you know black life being uh, in constant danger and that you know we're all just one one moment away from being like George Floyd. And I just didn't like that. I didn't like it at all. Um, and I actually, while there were people I agreed with uh, who were maybe more right leaning, I also didn't like uh, their approach. I didn't 100% agree with them. I mostly agreed with them, um, and I felt like no one was, was it. No one was saying exactly what I wanted to say. Mm. Um, and I got some encouragement from free speech platforms that I finally was able to kind of go on and, you know, I expressed myself that way. And people were like, you should write more often because I was able to explain myself in a very clear manner. So I finally just said, you know what, let me just, let me go for it. Let me write a book.
1: Um, No, Most people don't dive straight into a book, Adam. That's, that's huge. (laughs) That's huge. Now just for our listeners um, and you may have actually got it put two and two together in the title of the book, you are actually yourself African American. So you are speaking about this issue from a place of direct knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah so, I mean, it's,
0: it's, it's my perspective. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so you decide to write, write the book. How do you start that process? I mean, did you literally say what they say to many great authors, write what you know?
0: Yes. Uh, so uh, when you read the book, you quickly realize it's a very personal book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's social commentary mixed with a biography. So you'll learn a lot about me, uh, my childhood, especially, um, uh, my failures, things that I learned. Um, but it's, it's for a purpose. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm mixing it into like a social commentary. Um, and on top of that, I felt like the more I wrote, the more I was able to find my voice. And the better I became as a writer as well. Um, so all those things kind of came together. Um, you know, obviously I I Googled some stuff to try and get some some methods and things like that. But it writing a book is actually relatively straightforward. The hardest part about writing a book is just writing.
1: Mm, Getting Um, started.
0: Yeah, getting started. Um, and not too many people know this. I've said this in, in some interviews before. I was about four months, no, I was about three months in. And I went back and read like stuff I wrote in the, in the earlier part. And I realized my tone was harsh. was kind of antagonistic because I was frustrated with like all the stuff that was going on and that's not my voice, you know? So I actually had to go back and rewrite all of those things, almost like side-by-side side, what I was talking about. And I rewrote it in my, my real voice. Hmm. Um,
1: because the book for me only just arrived over the weekend, so I've only just started. But like I, um, I know I got through ch- when I got to chapter two, which is entitled "The Broken Black Father." That's mm-hmm. a very, very personal chapter, and yeah. it is a topic that I know I have heard before in terms of family dynamics. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you because I believe that your experience and things that you are seeing in the United States actually have a lot of direct comparisons to what we're seeing in this country. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience in terms of your upbringing, because I mean, it wasn't all teeing roses, was it? It was, it was tough. You you had to be resilient.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, so first and foremost, I I grew up with my mom and my sister. Um, I rarely saw my father. Um, I rarely received any phone calls from him. Granted, we moved a lot. Uh, he was always in state of Michigan. We uh, we left Michigan when I was five, and moved to different states. Uh, before the age of eighteen, I lived in four states, um, in various towns. In between them, um, I've lived in five states in total. Uh, I had moved to Tennessee and then moved back to New Jersey. I've been in New Jersey since. But um, you know, we moved a lot. But I seeing my father hearing from him. It was just rare. If, if I was lucky, I get like one or two phone calls in a given year. And it would last for maybe like five minutes. Um, you know, it was just, my father was always like a stranger. Um, the last time I saw my father, I was 16. The last time i spoke with my father, I was 21. Mm-hmm. And he passed away, I want to say it was like five years ago now um and when he did pass away i found out about three months after he died
1: oh that's, um, yeah that's tough and the situation yeah. was unusual because the situation was one whereby this wasn't a broken relationship that your mother had with your father this was a relationship where your mother was in an extra marital affair with your father is that right
0: yeah um, I mean, in in not so PC terms, my mother was the other woman. Mm. Uh, my father was always married, just not to my mom. Yeah. Um, so you know, that was the situation. It's not like it was a secret, my mother knew. Um, you know, sometimes people are misled, but that wasn't the case. Um and and on top of the, my father's situation, we were homeless a couple of times as a kid. Um And I only recently, I didn't put this in the book because I I didn't have a way of connecting it to a social commentary per se, but only recently I I started talking about this because it was like one of those things that kind of was like still hanging over me that I haven't fully gotten over. But, um, you know, I was six years old when I was admitted to a mental hospital and you know, cause I told my mother I wanted to kill myself and you know, I was, I was six. I didn't, you know, you don't know, fully understand what that means. Uh, but I was admitted and, um, I was basically, I was there for three months. Um, but when, I mean, three months is a long time for a six-year-old for oh, one, yeah. but it feels even longer when you don't know when you're going home. Mm and so every day you're like is today the day you know for 90 days my mother would come and visit and i would ask her am i going home today she would have to tell me no and for a long time like those memories i i kind of just blocked out until um a number of years ago my sister brought it up in conversation and like it all just like started coming back to me um so I I started writing about it because I didn't want this emotional hold over it like I wanted to to get over it and actually writing the book was very therapeutic dealing with like my feelings about my father you know much of what you read especially in that chapter uh I was crying as I was writing it oh. but I but I had to like get over it and so now that's why I'm able to talk to you and it doesn't it doesn't bother me in the same way because I accept it I can't change it and I want to use these examples to possibly um, have in someone else's head about being a better father, being a better man, or from a woman's perspective, like maybe it's really important that I choose a man not in this situation or bring children in this situation because it does affect them. Um, and, and one thing I'll say is, I don't think enough children who grew up in this situation are willing to talk about it. Um, because they're afraid of how it may look um, in regards to their mother. You know, so when your father's not there, and your mother's the only adult figure who's there taking care of you, it sounds like you're being ungrateful, that you're criticizing her or being or at least being showing some sort of critique, you know, she sacrificed and she was by Mm -hmm. herself and she did all these things and she's strong. It's like all those things are true. But you can still criticize, like your circumstance, And in my situation, both of my parents are responsible for my circumstance and for my struggles and for my sister's struggles as well. Mm. Um, And I can't change it. I can talk about it, though, so that let's say there's somebody who hasn't had children yet, someone who hasn't gotten married yet, someone who's out there who who reads this. Let's say it's a father who's like, you know what? Let me do a little extra to be a better father. you know, maybe my book somehow can help them. Um, so, I mean, the, writing the book in general was therapeutic for me. It was a way for me to finally like express myself. And then just after that, I was just, I was glad that I was able to do it. And I just wanted to see if anybody would like it. So I really didn't have any expectations. Um, I don't know if you remember when I I was like in the in the group chat um, or uh, on on the YouTube chat, saying like, "Hey, Carrie, I, I I'm about to publish a book that I just wrote."
1: <laughs> yeah, I too, I was there. Yeah. So for yeah. for listeners, um, Adam and I are uh, in another community, so that's how we met. And, and, and that yeah. was just it. Like you just threw it out there. So like, I'm writing a book. It's like, wow, this is this is crazy. You actually, I want to touch on your mum there because I mean, the fact that you mm-hmm. spent that time in that hospital actually shows a level of concern and care that she must have. Mm-hmm had for you at that time. And you, you know, there must be a strength and resilience and a care that she has had that, that has gotten you know I mean like she sounds like she was pretty tough in terms of she you know she'd work hard she she tried very hard to keep a roof over your head and when it didn't she tried to work something out so what were some Mm -hmm. of the things that that you actually learned from her some of the things that she did that helped set you up Um, because as you said you don't want to be critical and not all of it was perfect but it does sound like she was she was fairly tough as well and she did the, the best that she can in the situation that she was in.
0: Yeah, my mom, my mom was relatively tough. Um, and one thing I'll to, before I answer your question, one thing I'll say is, I don't blame my mother for having me admitted, my mother listened to professionals, and the professionals told her to do that. Um, and I, I get it, like, if you're if your kid tells you something like that, you don't know what to do. So you listen to what these professionals are telling you. Um, it's a really, really difficult situation. Um, it's a really difficult situation to put any parent or any child. Um, so I, I don't blame her for that decision, but what I did learn from my mother was, um, you know, there's no real excuse other than to just keep going. Like, even though we were homeless, my mom had a full-time job both times, she was always working. We never went on government assistance. Um, We could have, when, you know, one of the times we were homeless, my mother got scammed. And that's what led for us to to become homeless and we had to go to a homeless shelter, but we had a car, we were, my mom was working. uh, And my mom was like, we're only gonna be here for a very short period of time. I'm getting, we're getting out of here ASAP. We're not staying in this homeless shelter. And I remember those homeless shelter days, too. Um, You know, and it was kind of like a paranoid time. Because my mom was like, you don't let anybody in the room. You don't talk to anybody. (laughs) You don't. you don't look at anybody. I'm just like, okay, I'm just like this kid. um, Listen to what my mom was saying. But yeah, I, I, I don't remember anybody's name. I don't think I ever talked to anybody while I was there. I just went to school went back to the shelter, went inside, stayed in the room. That's literally all I did. Um, But, you know, the thing I learned from my mom is that you, you have to keep going. Like, you just have to keep doing. And even like with all the things that I struggled with, like economically, professionally, it was just like, well, you just, you got to find something else. Like, you just have to keep going. Like, you don't have that much of a choice. Um, So I think I think resilience was the thing I, uh, without without really thinking about it, was something that I picked up from my mom.
1: You actually in the book too, you mentioned around welfare, and you, you touched on it there. Your mother never um, took welfare, and what is what are your views around in terms of creating a cycle of victimhood amongst families mm-hmm. and amongst children especially, what role do you think welfare plays in that?
0: It creates one, complacency, um, because someone is doing for you, uh, providing for you, even if it's the bare minimum. Um, I mean, granted, there are people, and I've known of people, who are utilizing welfare programs temporarily, right? I think for those people, they had the mindset going in, that this is only temporary, maybe something happened in their life, but they, they had the, the strive to get off of it, the strive to kind of keep going, but I can completely see someone becoming complacent or feeling demoralized if they tried to move past that, because essentially like, I don't know how, it, how it is in, in New Zealand, but in the United States, in order for you to get certain government assistance, you have to be below that. Like a particular economic threshold, which is a relatively low one. So, you know, there it, it almost feels like there is no in between. So, if you're like, all right, well, I took a better job, it's not the greatest job. I'm still broke. You know, I'm still very, very much so check to check. I could use a little help. You're cut off. So, it's like, well, if I, If I don't take that job and I stay under this economic bar, then they'll give me all this stuff, (laughs) you know? So it's a, I can see where it's a very difficult thing to leave that certainty that the government is going to provide for you. Um, And as far as victimhood, I never really, it's interesting that you you put the two together because I never really saw... The government promoting victimhood in from the sense of like welfare. Um, I just more so saw it from a, a place of complacency, I guess I would say. The victimhood to me was more cultural. Um, you know, uh, uh, the the mother tells the daughter, the father tells his son. They have children. They tell their children. And like it's just, it's certain narratives, it's certain ways of seeing things. Um It you know it happened to our ancestors. It can happen to you. You know it's it's stuff like that. Uh, the inability to move forward. The inability to say, all right, this person is part of a demographic that did do something bad, but they haven't done anything to me. I should look at them as an individual. Um Where I think often we have like an in group, out group, where we give the in group the benefit of the doubt, the out group um no no goodwill and we kind of lean on that that's kind of like our tribalistic nature um but i think sometimes that fosters the victimhood stuff um and i'm it's funny because i can see that as a black american i can see certain aspects of it within black american culture and then when i look at other people uh political groups racial groups I'm seeing the same stuff happening there. And it's very interesting that other people can't.
1: I mean, now with the current culture, victimhood is uh, rejoiced and has been alleviated to a place of uh, almost celebration. But it was interesting. Mm -hmm. I do find you're right in terms of uh, complacency. There is certainly a complacency that's created with welfare and because New Zealand is largely a socialist nation we do have a much uh, greater level of welfare available to New Zealanders so the bar here is not as low as it needs to be in the US in order to attain it and a lot of work has been done and particularly in recent years with this cultural shift to destigmatize anybody uh, requiring welfare but more than that um welfare has been created and rebranded in the form of other things. I mean, one of the things I really struggle with is the fact that it destroys aspiration. And so what we now see in New Zealand is that there is a cycle within certain communities where you have multi-generational welfare and beneficiaries. So uh, families that were taking um, benefits from the state, who then have families that are born into and supported by those benefits, who then go on themselves to draw benefits and never actually enter into the wider workforce. And I mean, that, so that's why I draw that connection between welfare and victimhood, because in a way, the state is just taking away any aspiration for them to actually mm-hmm. go on and do something more, which then leaves them, I, I guess, vulnerable to be in a state of victimhood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I, the, the way you explained that, I can see that Uh, we have that in, in certain situations. Um, like I said, the bar is lower to get it, but it doesn't mean that people don't live under that bar. Um, and they, they do receive that assistance. Um, so yeah, I don't, at least in the United States, I don't see welfare as big of an issue because, um, I think for a lot of people they use it as a very temporary thing the generational welfare situation happens but not as often i think as people might think um i think for a lot of people it's kind of in and out but listen there are people who are like i'm a game the system and they they do everything possible to kind of make it worth worth their while so um is it but it's interesting the differences between the the two countries
1: You mentioned then that you felt that victimhood was more cultural. So talk us through that. I mean, is it something that's largely, um, I mean, it's obviously it's something that you see in the African-American community. Um, How how does that manifest itself?
0: Well, I mean, it's not like it it comes from nowhere. Um, You know, even conspiracy theories, they have a a grain of truth to it. Uh, It's just how you extrapolate from there. I think for Black Americans, we're all told the stories of slavery and Jim Crow, right? Um, And listen, there are people who are still alive who were alive during Jim Crow. Um, My mother was born in 1960. Uh, The Jim Crow era ended, uh, was it 64? 64, 65. I think it was 64. Um, So, I mean, my mother was alive when when the Jim Crow era was still going on. she didn't grow up in it in the uh, in in that situation in the South, but it was it was something that was happening uh by means of government uh in in parts of the United States. Um, in other areas, you can say socially, there was uh segregation that was happening, like kind of de facto segregation, but it wasn't it wasn't overtly enforced by the government. It might have been just socially. Maybe it wasn't very favorable for black people to live over here or very favorable for black people to associate in in certain businesses. You know, all those things may be true. I wasn't alive then, but we're all told these, these different stories. And so I think over a period of time, when you look for why someone isn't succeeding, if you have a, a victimhood mindset, you look for, uh, someone to point blame at, right. Are there things that uh, I'll just use myself? Are there things that I didn't succeed at because of someone else? Possibly, I could blame my father for not being there. I could, I could blame my mother for not choosing a better man, and and certain things that she did. I can blame all these people, but ultimately, like what changes nothing. Um, rather than a, a victor mindset, where I say, "Okay, despite all those things, what can I do?" to better myself? Where did I mess up? How can I change my circumstance? Uh, Because blame my father doesn't do anything. And he's not going to do anything for me to to fix my own situation. But I think when you when you share these stories, and people always go back and reference it, uh, when they see some sort of what's perceived as a social problem, they say it's just like back then, you know, uh, George Floyd, perfect example they say it's just like um, uh, what, what they call it, slave catchers, right? When, you know, oh, the slave catchers were the original police force, which they weren't. Um, <laughs> like a pol- the idea of policing never existed before, <laughs> before, you know, the, uh, slavery in America um, is absurd. So it, it's stuff like that, that I think we we lean on the horror stories of the past And we use that as an excuse or a reason why we should have some sort of paranoia about the present, um, why we should blame people that we've never met um, that happen to be of a certain demographic as to my personal woes for today. Um, And it's not just racial. Like I see it with all different types of stuff. I've criticized feminism, but at the same time, I recognize that many, many feminists i can only speak from in the united states you could probably say the same thing around the world many of those feminists have some sort of reason why they distrust men they don't like men they're misandrous and i think a lot of them are actually survivors of abuse or survivors of assault by a man so they have an ideology that kind of fosters their animosity or their paranoia or their fear of men and gives them a reason, you should fear men, because of blah, 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 blah. blah. And they, they they just have the whole guideline that fosters this um, irrational viewpoint of a demographic of people. And then people benefit off of that, you, you know, you could raise money off of that, you have feminist organizations, you, you have all you have a whole apparatus of, that exists to have foot soldiers of women to hate men, um, entertainment. You know you, you the list goes on. so it's not what I think what I wanted to kind of point out in my book is that victimhood isn't just on a personal scale, but it, it's an industry in itself um that people make money off of you looking at yourself as lesser than or you feeling like you're incapable of doing something. and they know better and they know better and they should be doing better, but they're malicious people. Um, So that's why in the book, I use like Al Sharpton, for example, there's a whole chapter I call ivory tower black elites. And I write about these people often, the upper class black Americans who try to make themselves sound like they're just like the lower class, and that their issues are just the same. Um, Like, it's like when Oprah Winfrey went to, I think it was Switzerland and she couldn't get into a very high scale store or she accused them of not letting her in.
1: Humise be- or something, wasn't it? Humise that she couldn't get into and she got really upset I, I, because I, she felt she was racially profiled. Right. Now,
0: let's say she was right. That That's not good. But that is of the most upper class problem ever. <laughs> First world problem. Yeah. That's that's beyond first world that's <laughs> most of us can just go to any store be, and walk right in because we can only afford the stuff that's there when they have to lock up everything and and take in a handful of people at one at one time you're on another level um and so yeah there stuff like that happens all the time where you see the the upper class pretend that their wealth their power their status has zero to do uh, uh, with, with their life it all. It's just, it's just how I look. It's just my racial complexion. The wealthy, they're not even just the wealthiest black people. They're of the wealthiest people in the world. You know, the 1% of the 1%, <laughs> you know, complaining about life. Uh, you know, they would have put me in first class, but the lady asked me, are you sure you're in first class? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> well, I can't like, believe she asked me that.
0: <laughs> it's, it's it's like
1: what you were saying in terms of the Jim Crow movement, because I mean, it was it was the civil rights movement, you know, led by people like Dr. Martin Luther King, that mm-hmm. actually ended that period, and and the steps forward from a, a social equality point of view were massive. That that right. went cult, on culturally, and I look at the civil rights movement, and then you look on the other hand, to what we have today, which is Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And how, I mean, how did everything get turned around? I mean, you talked about Black social elites. I mean, the founder of Black Lives Matter, I mean, she's a multi-millionaire, multiple properties, living this elitist life. I mean, do you find her as a grifter trying to perpetrate Black victimhood that just in many cases simply isn't there?
0: Yes, without a doubt. Um You know, it's, it's interesting because it's hard to tell when someone is just saying it and when someone is a true believer. And I tend to think is not exclusively like all the time, but like, I tend to think that the people who are at the top are not true believers because it's hard to be a true believer and do things that one, make you money and two, that are completely irrational. um, And you have to work with a lot of people, Right. So you can say stuff, but behind the scenes is is a different story. And it makes me think of, I don't know, have you ever seen the movie American History X? No. No. So uh, without getting like too too deep into it, it's about a a guy who kind of becomes radicalized and he becomes a white supremacist, ends up in jail. Um, His friend becomes, is a black guy there. And actually, the people who hurt him the most while he was in jail were other skinheads. Um, and he realized that this is all one big scam and joke, you know this this white supremacist movement. And but there, when he was on the outside, there was a a fatherly figure guy who felt power by taking these uh, you know dysfunctional white boys and giving them a purpose. Go destroy that store. You know, because a bunch of immigrants are taking it over and they're they're trying to infest your neighborhood. He gave them a purpose. He wasn't a true believer, though. He just liked the power. Mm. He knew what was really going on. And and towards the end, what you saw was when he got out of jail, he confronts that guy because he's also trying to recruit his younger brother. Um, And he's saying, stay away from my brother. He's like, I know what you really are. And you can tell that this guy is not really a true believer. He's not a foot soldier. He's a guy at top. Hmm. you know, And that's why I think we see a lot of times, like someone like Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton has made up racial Mm -hmm. hoaxes. Uh, He's exaggerated stuff. He's got himself involved in all different types of things. Do I think he's a true believer? No, I don't think he's a true believer. He can say black this and black that. He will mix and mingle with anybody of his economic class. He is a true blue Democrat, and he will twinkle out black this and black that when he feels it's necessary. But how he lives his life is just like every other person who's a multimillionaire, every other person. And we're supposed to ignore that. We're supposed to just say, well, he must still have it tough. <laughs> yeah.
1: You're not seeing Al uh, slipping it down in the projects anytime soon.
0: No, 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 he doesn't. Um, and if he does, it's very momentarily. He lives, he he literally lives in, in like the, you might, I don't know if you guys use the term posh, but like the poshest part of of New York City, you know, he he lives, he's a millionaire. He's a multimillionaire. And people should really check out his tax forms, by the way. I talk about it in, in the book, um, how much how much money he brings in. But he is well connected. Um, when crime started going up in his neighborhood, I actually wrote an article about this. Crime started going up in his neighborhood when there was so much shoplifting that they had to lock up his toothbrushes, right? From his local pharmacy, he was able to convene the mayor, all these other black politicians to get them together to talk about how we're, gonna, how we're gonna do something about this crime situation. Oh, now you guys care about the crime. Meanwhile, a couple years prior, a few years prior, they had bail reform where they basically would say, uh, oh, you're here for theft. They process you and let you go the same day. It's like, you, know, you guys don't see what's going on or they give leniency uh, for, for supposedly lower level crimes they give leniency and and lower the the amount of time you get locked up for so they went really soft on crime and then what do you know <laughs> all of crime started going up then when it bothers the upper class then they do something about it is basically my point including the black upper class
1: because I'm quite a few years older than you. So just looking back, like in my lifetime and having lived in <coughs> the United States in the in the late 80s, early 90s, actually, I have to say living in the US at that time was a really golden era for being there. You know, like I didn't, I lived in an area in the Midwest. The school that I went to was very multicultural, largely due to the fact that it was based um, just off one of the largest military bases in the country, so mm. you had people from not only all ethnic and racial spectrums, but you also international students as well. Everyone just sort of got on, it, and it—I was—it was a real mounting, melting pot. And I didn't see that whole. There was a real pride and swagger and uh, confidence uh, within African American culture that was really infectious and joyous. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a really wonderful time to be around. A lot of the core, I had African American friends, and a lot of the core of that was based in the church. Now Al Sharpton, I think he is a, a reverend, isn't he? Supposedly. Supposedly. <laughs> Supposedly. Yeah. So there is so this is the thing that I find really interesting. Since the entire in the last few years, in terms of critical race theory and critical social justice, there has been a almost a separation between that ideology and Christianity. Do you think yeah. um, the deterioration? of Christianity under the influence of these ideologies has actually been detrimental to the African-American community and communities as a whole.
0: I actually wouldn't. So here's the interesting thing about like the the Black Lives Matter kind of uh, neo-Marxist movement.
1: It's almost like a religion for people.
0: Well, yes, for sure. It, It definitely has religious undertones, but I actually don't see, I think for people who uh, are not Black, uh, who live in America, they see, I, I'll i just put it simply, they fall for the propaganda, um, much in the way that the Black activists paint themselves as the representation of what the average Black person thinks, when in reality, most of the Black activists are part of the same economic class that I was talking about before, they're of the upper middle to upper class. They are the college educated, which is an institution of the elite these days. Um, they, They are those people, yet they speak for everybody else. And what ends up happening is people who aren't Black, who don't know any better, see them as the representation of what Black people think. When in reality, like if you talk to, like they're not repping Black Lives Matter shirts. (laughs) <laughs> like it's it's very rare that you'll actually see a black person with a black lives matter shirt. Sure. And 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 a from a perspective of do black lives matter? Yes. Right? Anybody would say that. But as far as being like a uh, full fully dove into that ideology, the the neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist ideology, no. The vast majority aren't. Matter of fact, there's a study that was done uh of of the three of uh progressive activists only three percent are black so the black lives matter movement was a white movement mm-hmm. but the media paints it in a, as a black movement this is but no it is overwhelmingly one is a upper class two it is a upper class white movement and and this is part of the the propaganda that i'm talking about regular black people and studies have shown this, polling has showed this, are moderates, right? They might be ambivalent about certain things, but they're moderates. Mm -hmm. But to to the religious aspect that you were talking about, I see more of a corruption of church issue. Um, Not a, I'm getting rid of the church and going towards, you know, uh, Marxist theory and stuff like that. Does that happen? Probably. but. What I see more of a corruption of the church. We have stuff like the pros- prosperity gospel. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. I'm so glad I could tell you about it. So the prosperity. Just so people know, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, the prosperity gospel is one huge scam. So what they say is they, they find some sort of scripture, just like any other malicious person does. They find a piece of scripture to legitimize their actions. So when you when you find someone like, um, I guess you could say Joel Olstein fits this. Uh, there's a guy named, literally his name is Teflon Dollar.
1: Teflon Dollar.
0: Yes, <laughs> Teflon Dollar. Yeah, I'm not even joking. He's a prosperity preacher. And you know what he says? He says... Um, They all encourage that you give 10% of your earnings to the church, right? So right off the bat, you give 10% of the earnings. They legitimize you giving as much money to the church because whatever you give, God is going to give you back, you know, in folds, right? So they're saying, if you want to get blessings, you have to give. So give to me. And so literally, these people are multimillionaires, private jets, like just ridiculous amounts of money um and and they call it the prosperity gospel because the people who go to these churches and they have tens of thousands of people who attend the churches in person like it's it's like an arena of people that that go to these churches who give 10 percent or more of their check they really do believe that god is going to pay them back in droves with blessings because they gave up so much money to this person and guess what? Just like I said before, that guy is not a real believer. He's like, God bless these people, giving me all this money, right? <laughs> He'll say all the right words, but he's not the true believer. The true believer are the people who are sacrificing their earnings to give to some guy who doesn't even actually believe what he's saying. Um, he's manipulative.
1: We do have that here, and uh, they call it okay. tithing. Tithing is what they call it here. Tithing. <laughs> tithing. Yeah, tithing. It's uh, and it's something that's quite common uh, within the Pentecostal church uh, mm. movement here. The more modern churches. So yeah, it is, and it, and, it, and, it, and it's a real conundrum because, like I know uh, when you were describing that example, there is a church group here, but uh, it's probably the most well known that fits that description and the leaders of that church are exceptionally charismatic and have a, um, a you know, there is definitely trappings of wealth there. And, but interestingly enough, there is, they've also been ones that have been really, really critical about pushing back with certain ideologies and they're very polarizing. I sit on the fence almost with them because I look at them and think, gosh, on one hand, exactly as you described, you know, how, how, embedded in the faith are you that you must insist that people within your congregation need to feed this beast and constantly feed this beast. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, uh, the work that they do actually out in the community and they do a lot of work and the area where I live got hit by a cyclone six weeks ago and a number of places were very extensively damaged and groups from that church Uh, have from around the country have all come together to actually they've been one of the main groups that have done a tremendous amount of work in cycling cleanup they've not been asked to do it they've just gone out there and done it so you sort of have Mm -hmm. this but it's like as you said it's dividing the leaders from the congregation isn't it because the congregation are and I think that's where I'm at I have a huge amount of respect for the people within the congregation Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% about those that but lead it so that's interesting that is really interesting and it is that corruption of religion it's it's that i guess that there is um any body that has power at that at its core whether that be emotional Mm -hmm. power or financial power power ultimate power can corrupt ultimately can't it so there is always that element for corruption um, and I guess that's something that uh, that people do have to watch for. How do you see the equity agenda, particularly within minority communities, that is now MLK's equality? That's, you know, so 1965, darling. We don't do that anymore <laughs> now. It's all about the equity. How do you see that equity and gender and, and positive discrimination affecting those communities? I mean, is it is it having a positive effect like they claim it does, or is it? being largely detrimental?
0: Um, I don't think it has a positive effect on anybody. The reason I criticize progressives the most is because everything that they promise will happen has the opposite effect. I think that there are people who have good intentions, who got swindled into bad theory, who ignore human nature and, and presume the best out of everybody superficially. So, you know you know, like the bail reform thing. I understand why someone will want bail reform. And there are some really bad stories about situations people locked up and get hurt while not going through the process of being convicted. So I, I, I understand why someone would want to change the system sort of, but you don't get rid of bail, <laughs> right? Because most of the people who are getting locked up, you can easily presume that they're guilty and there are going to be a lot of dangerous people. So you don't do the complete opposite. You do it logically. You try to figure out, you don't say, I feel bad for the black ones who get locked up. So let's just get rid of it because it disproportionately affects black. Like that kind of stuff actually hurts people because we'll we'll use that as an example of crime. If you live in New York City, the crime is mostly in predominantly black and minority neighborhoods, right? Well, If the crime is there, who are they hurting?
1: Yeah, more black people.
0: More black people. So when you say, oh, we're just going to get rid of bail, and the guy who threatened you, who's arrested, goes and gets processed and is back on the streets that evening, how do you feel as a citizen, right? Especially in a city where getting a gun is extremely difficult. So protecting yourself with a weapon is very, very difficult. And you have to rely on the police or you know, hopefully you have some sort of bat or something, who knows how you're gonna defend yourself against someone who is aggressive. And, and I think there's this absent-mindedness of understanding that there are bad people that exist in this world. There are people who prey upon people who are weaker than them. And also the other thing is that, I, I was talking to someone uh, out in Minnesota and there was like a, a string of crimes that were going on, right? car thefts, uh, you know, breaking into houses and stuff like that. And what they discovered was that all of this chaos was being created by 12 boys. Wow. 12 boys. And, and so when we see like crime infested area, what you're actually seeing is poor working class people trying to survive amongst the chaos because there are a select number of of chaotic people who are destroying that area. Literally, you could have, let's say you have an area of 20,000 people, right? Sounds like a decent amount of people, but let's say you have 200 of them that are just purely chaotic uh, criminals, gang members, 200 gang members, they can ruin that entire area. So the extreme minority of people, the extreme minority of, of criminals And if we just want to say Black, extreme minority of Black criminals are actually terrorizing other Black people. So when you have more empathy for the criminals, because, oh, well, you know, they're staying and they're too long, you know, and you ignore the law-abiding citizen who is like, has to look over their shoulder when they're putting their keys in the door, right? You don't care about those people but you have empathy for the criminal. It's stuff like that, where it's like, I I get it. You want everybody to live in this utopian world where everybody gets fairness. And life is about sacrifice. Life is about finding some sort of balance between right and wrong and how you can be consistent on things. And when you just, when you completely go towards um, ignoring a whole swath of people, they don't even come on your radar. Like when you talk to people about that and you say, well, who do these people hurt? It it just doesn't matter. Like they don't even see them. So it's, well, it's just very it's,
1: interesting. It, it's the whole defund the police thing that was, you know, a mantra at the end of 2020. And I think yeah. I saw a survey was done amongst African-Americans and it was something like 85% of African-Americans did not want the police defunded because they knew that they were the ones that were going to be most detrimentally affected by the defunding of the police. So in the entire right. movement uh, was based on, uh, a, a data in terms of defunding police around the uh, the so-called racial attacks against unarmed African-Americans and I think mm-hmm. something like in 2019 there was, uh, I think it was what, about a dozen or something there was only like a dozen deaths of unarmed African-Americans in that time right. but The perception, the public perception of if you were to go to a normie in the street and you said to them how many unarmed black men were killed. I think Douglas Murray touches on this in his book, how many unarmed black men were killed at the hands of the police, they would say anything, not just hundreds, but thousands or tens of thousands when the actual Mm -hmm. number was, I think, I think was 17 or 19 or something like that. So So.
0: one one particular year it was 13 and and amongst those 13 were they they were unarmed, but they were attacking. <laughs> right. So you're still dangerous. If you're reaching for the cops gun, you're still dangerous. Um, so though those people are amongst that 13 that, that they were being that was calculated. Um, but you're right. The 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 fund the, the police movement was was part of it, but like I said, who was part of that movement? It wasn't black people. Um the so one thing I will also say for, for people who are in New Zealand, I, I think they have to understand that our country is a vast, vast country. And we have a lot of regions that are very, very different. We have different levels of government, um, you know, federal, state, county, city you know, we have various layers. And we have various layers of demographics that live in particular areas all over the country. So like, if you go into the Southwest, there's a lot of Hispanic people. Why? Because it's old Mexican territory. So there's a lot of people of Mexican heritage. You know, th- we have a lot of reasons why our, our country looks different. We have, uh, you know, the desert, we have mountains, it looks like, you know, Switzerland, we have all different types of of uh, different demographics and different uh, in different regions of the country, for Black Americans, I don't think people understand that much of our issues or much of our—I don't want to say issues—much of our concerns are regional. Mm. So even like I know we're speaking broadly about do Black Americans think this? It is very much so regional and in, in viewpoint in how they see things, uh, the type of issues that they have. Sixty percent of Black Americans only live in ten states. And within those states, you know which states they are because you can think of the big cities. So they live either within or in the surrounding urban areas, which means if you talk about policing, do, do Black Americans have some sort of negative viewpoint of police? Probably, I don't, know, I don't know the studies as far as like negative viewpoints, but let's say that there is a significant portion that do. Their concerns are about urban policing Right. So uh, if you live in the sticks, like if you live in a remote area, policing looks different there versus if you live in Chicago. Right. Vast different approach to policing. Maybe Chicago's likely Chicago's going to be more aggressive. They have different concerns. They're looking for guns. They're looking for drugs. Where if you live in the boonies. You know yeah. we, we and also in
1: the urban areas, you've got um police departments which are funded from a metropolitan cash pool, right. and and uh the police are, go through academies and they're employed with the very head of the department being elected. Whereas if you go into the boonies, you'd then working with sheriff's departments that are quite different yeah. and they have a different structure in terms of who they answer to. And in fact, actually, in a way, sheriffs hold um. A, almost more power than urban policing in a lot of respects in terms of what they're able to achieve. And it is, and that's, you know, you bring up a good point about in terms of the layers um, that you have, there is a lot of layers of complexity, but within that complexity is also checks and balances to ensure Mm -hmm. that if something does go rotten in the state of Denmark, that there is abilities for people to change it. Whereas in this country, Being so small, you know, five, five and a half million people, we have a very linear Form of governance we have changing a law here is can happen very quickly uh, and without mm-hmm. consultation. And from a democratic standpoint, you've got once every three years to voice your concern and uh, place your vote. And then after that, whoever gets in um, can pretty much run amok. At right. least you make up make enough noise within the public square. And that can get difficult when the public square is being censored. So It is quite a a different standpoint. However, the interesting thing about New Zealand is there's a saying here that is when the United States sneezes, we catch a cold. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah a lot of people say that. <laughs> yeah so whatever happens uh, in the United States whether it be economically whether it be uh, from a governance perspective or culturally uh, it mm-hmm. it filters down here and I've certainly seen amongst the Maori population a an adopting of critical social justice which is an Mm -hmm. American import, let's face it. it, it was born there. And they've gone and taken that and they're trying to sort of meld it with traditional Māori culture and beliefs, as if this is how uh, you know this is this belief system has always been there, and it's like no, it hasn't. <laughs> you know they yeah. they are trying and they, there's a lot of gaslighting of their own people going on, and it's and that's where I see a lot of similarities between what is going on and um, with the African American community versus what's going on here in the New Zealand example, because those who are perpetrating that are exactly the ones that you were talking about. They're the Māori elite. They are Mm -hmm. university educated. They hold positions of prominence and power, often in government or government-funded entities, and they don't necessarily speak for the everyday Māori on the streets. So Mm -hmm. there is a lot. That's part of that sort of tribalism that comes in, but it's a new form of, it's a new tribalism, isn't it, based around these neo-Marxist ideologies and theories. Do you see a pushback? Are you starting to see because are there more black conservatives um, that are finding their voices now and are starting to get heard? Are you seeing that?
0: A little bit. I think so. I mean, I I wasn't always because sometimes I see myself as conservative and sometimes I don't. I, I try to see myself as a moderate and it just depends on what it is. Does the overton
1: um, window allow that? being moderate. I think <laughs> moderates are endangered species, aren't
0: they? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. That's the thing with wrong speak. Mm. Wrong speak was an avenue for moderates to be heard. Most, I mean, most of them were right-leaning moderates. I would probably classify myself as a right-leaning moderate, but there are a lot of things that I'm I'm okay with. Um, and And I have my personal values, but I'm not going to push them on other people, but I want to I want to make sure that certain people are protected because it's the moral thing to do. Um, so I'm, I'm very nuanced in that. And I I don't like the, like, even, even the thing of, uh, you know, the box of being a black conservative means that you have to be like Candace Owens and you guys always agree. And one of the things I realized when I started like speaking out and started entering the fray, there are all different types of relatively conservative voices. Who are Black, who don't like her, don't agree with her, have varying viewpoints where they do agree and disagree. And it's like, yeah, because we're all people like we all Mm -hmm. we all kind of see things from our own perspective a little bit differently. My perspective varies from other people as someone who's lived in five states, urban, rural and suburban areas, been around all different types of people. And my perspective is that there are crappy people of all colors. And so I just treat people like I want to be treated. And if you're nice to me, you're nice to me. If you're not, you're not. And if you're black, white, Hispanic, I I don't really care. I'll talk to you in in a respectful way. If you're respectful, if you're not, then, you know, I'll ignore you or or treat you with disrespect because you put it towards me. And, and so if I live my way that way, it, it, all this other stuff doesn't really matter. Um, You know, but it's just, it's just interesting all the different um bubbles and you know that uh, you know or boxes i should say that people want to kind of put other individuals in um and my fight has been to constantly evolve and constantly remove myself from whatever box that someone tries to put me in so if someone wants to call me a black conservative i don't fight him on it i just say this is what i want or this is what i like or this is what i'm criticizing this and that i don't i don't do that. as a black conservative I, like i don't i don't do any of that stuff um, but it's you know it's just an interesting dynamic to be in uh, when when the when the environment of ideas is being restricted for labels and boxes to put people in um but i think we're starting to see like a separation of that whether it be from from Black Americans who are kind of breaking free and like, you know what, I kind of do see this thing, you know, and and they're willing to to speak out a little bit, or if it's just any other American. um, You know, I've I've been wanting to talk about the anti-woke movement, how it's starting to fracture, but I think it does need to fracture, of the authoritarian conservatives versus the classical liberals versus the libertarians, because they're not all the same and everybody's been trying to place them in this box.
1: Tell us a little bit more about Wrong Speak. I get lots of inspiration from what you do over there. So tell us a wee bit more about that and uh, the collection of writers that you have there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Wrong Speak started off as a as I was writing my book, I started a blog. It was just me, um where I could just rant about stuff that had nothing to do with my book. For a period of time, I stopped doing anything until the book was published because it was, it was a little bit of a distraction. But after the book was published, I was like, I don't want it to be just me. Over a period of time, I just started to talk to different people and ask, hey, like, hey, you want to guest post here, guest post there. My objective was to take people who were in my situation where I felt stifled, like I couldn't speak, and just like show them some support and say, hey, I know you have no audience. Here's some audience and say what you want to say. My only caveat is we don't rah-rah this. We're not overtly any particular side. We just want you to intellectually uh, speak how you want to speak. We want you to explain yourself and I don't even have to agree with it. So we don't really have hate speech on our website because hate speech is not very intellectual. What's your intellectual argument to hate people? There isn't one. I don't really worry about that, but we criticize stuff. We talk about certain things, but we talk about it in a very understandable, clear, concise way that's not inflammatory because we wouldn't allow that. So we are pro-free speech as long as it's intellectually done. But basically, you know, it started off with just me. I I started getting guest writers. Now I have two editors. So for myself, I I started writing and I I said, I'm going to use my name. But the two editors I had when I first met them, one of them used a pseudonym and the other one used like an an avatar and, uh, you know, just some made up name. And over a period of time of just working with them, I slowly convinced them like, just use your name. So they both used their name, their picture they felt comfortable enough and they realized like the fear is much bigger than the reality of like the cancel culture mob and stuff like that. I'm someone who used my name. I've worked with two different employers. I'm still here. You know, I'm I'm fine. Why? Because I'm not mean, I'm not antagonistic. I don't invite certain things, but I write in a very public way. Someone could come after me as far as, you know, going after my character and stuff like that, but they don't. And I think that that's the key of how you say these things. I basically have two people that I pay. I have some staff writers that I pay per article to keep content going, but we're just inviting people. Hey, did you write an article? Send it to us. We'll republish it here. We have people who have Substacks who don't have much of an audience and say, well, bring it over here and we'll link it to your Substack and put it out there and have your name heard. Most of it is self-funded by me. You know, the stuff that I write, I read. I, I put it back into the business, and it's it's more of a passion project rather than a money maker. But I'm I'm perfectly fine with that, as long as I can encourage people to write, speak openly. That's all I really care about, and and people like what I'm trying to do.
1: I love it, I really enjoy it and if anyone wants to check that out it's at wrongspeak.net and it is certainly worth checking out as too as Adam's book Black Victim to Black Victor uh, if you are in this part of the world in New Zealand I uh, Amazon I had to text Adam, I was like Adam I can't find the book uh, and he put me on the right stair Amazon, uh, dot, uh, the Australian Amazon so that's amazon.com.au uh, and you can get hold of that book is there another book in the work Adam?
0: Kind of. So uh, I was writing in a book about saviorism. Um, but I've been so busy, I haven't been able to write anything. So hopefully sometime this year I'll uh, I'll be able to like sit down and actually like go for it.
1: Oh, I look really looking, really, really looking forward to that. Hey, look, I want to thank you so much for generously giving us your time today. This is Reality Check Radio. Thank you so much, Adam. It has been an utter joy. My pleasure. If you have any comments or views on the interview with Adam, I'd love to hear them. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio.
0: You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky.
1: (laughs) On RCR. Reality Check Radio.